0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: My name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Uh, Please feel free to look at our website, which is www.yaleruddcenter.org, for a list of our webcasts, including um, a series of seminar speakers we've had at the Rudd Center and lots of other information as well. Today our guest is Gina Collada from The New York Times. And I'm especially happy to welcome Gina today uh, because of the wonderful work she's done in areas of diet, nutrition, and weight loss. She's a science and medicine reporter for the New York Times. But in addition to her journalism experience, she has an outstanding background in science. She has a bachelor's degree in microbiology and a master's degree in applied mathematics from the University of Maryland and studied molecular biology at MIT, and then went on to be a health journalist. She's written books on a number of uh, interesting topics, including cloning, uh, fetal medicine, the flu epidemic, and most recently, a book called Rethinking Thin, which does, I think, a unique job in addressing issues of dieting, weight loss, and obesity by examining the topic from a number of different perspectives. So Gina, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. I'm delighted to have you here. Let's talk about your book. And you set out to find out what was going on in these big weight loss studies that keep happening year after year after year in major centers around the country. And I know you were interested in both the the factors that drive the fact that these studies exist and also the experience of the people who've been in them. And I think you learned a lot that you communicated through your book about the issues about dieting and weight loss. So tell us what got you started and what you found out that you wrote about in your book.
0: Well, I've been reporting on dieting and weight loss and obesity for more than two decades. And over the years, I would write about these big studies and science seemed to be advancing and seemed to be telling people something about how, how difficult it really is for somebody to become arbitrarily thin, whatever weight they want to be, just you know, eat less, exercise more, how how difficult that advice really was because most people in studies tended to gain weight back again after the study was over. And in addition, there have been studies of, for example, children who were adopted at birth showing that they that body weight really does tend to be strongly inherited. Children would grow up to have the body weight of their Biological parents, not their adoptive parents. There were studies of identical twins. This was all in the 1980s showing how strongly inherited body weight is. There were studies of, of, there were brain studies more recently trying that were showing that there are these circuits in the brain that control how much an animal or a person might weigh and how much they eat and why. There's study after study after study. So science was, was advancing and going in one direction. But for some reason, Uh, Maybe it was all commercial. There was a whole weight loss industry that was going, that went in a very different direction, and most people seemed to believe what the weight loss industry told them that if you find the right diet, or if you really, really care, if you really try, you too can be as thin as you want to be and stay there forever. So that whole sort of dichotomy really intrigued me. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to write a book, I should have some people in there. I mean, what's it like to be to say I'm? I'm going to try a diet, and this is going to be it. I'm going to lose weight for once and for all, and I'll never be fat again. I discovered that there was a study going on at the University of Pennsylvania and three other medical centers that was funded by the NIH. And it was going to compare Atkins to, actually, the program that you did, Kelly, learn. And it was that was a low-calorie program. Very, a very It was the best knowledge that anybody had about how how to lose weight and have a healthy diet and lifestyle. So the, the people would be randomized either a low-calorie diet with the LEARN program or the Atkins diet, and the study was going to go on for two years. I thought it would be interesting to see, to follow the people who were in that study and to ask what did they think going into it, why did they join it, what happened as, as the two years went on, and what happened at the end? Did they come out of it knowing any more about themselves or about dieting or not? Did they come out of it thinner or not? And if they didn't come out of it thinner, who did they blame?
1: Well, the nice thing about the way you've approached this is you're really the first journalist, I think, who's gone in and spent time with people and really appreciated their experience as they were going through this and understood their hopes, their fears, their thoughts about this, what happened when they had uh, progress, when they had setbacks and the like. After the two years of treatment that they received, and this is at Penn, one of the finest centers in the country, what's your impression about did they benefit did they not did they lose weight did they not do these diets work don't they
0: it was it was a really interesting experience for me and i think probably for them too but maybe even more for me because at first just as always seems to happen in these studies everybody is very enthusiastic oh i'm i'm I love this diet. I can control everything. I get a little bit hungry sometimes, but it's no big deal. I'm taking my own food when I go to the movies. Everything is perfect. And they also were saying I'm never going to be fat again. It was all my own fault. I did everything wrong. I'm then after 6 months or so, when people had lost pretty much weight, they looked very different. The weight started to come back, and nobody could understand that the people in the study, even though they, you know, they presumably were getting the kind of information that learn tells them, for example, the book says it's not. If you, if you are, you can't say that you got you got fat because you are under stress or for psychological reasons that you may have that that that's that. Otherwise, it would be very easy to to solve the whole problem. Just get rid of your stress and you won't be fat anymore. That doesn't happen. But they still believed it. They believed all the myths and they thought it was their own fault that they were getting fat again. They were they they were. They, um, they kept trying and trying, and kind of not admitting that, that the weight was really coming back, but it did come back. By the end of two years, people were pretty much where they started from. But what was interesting to me was some of them seemed to gain, first of all, a number of them said that the way they look at food and exercise is really different. The people who are on the low-calorie diet said they knew, everybody knew portion sizes, and they said they didn't before people on the low-calorie diet said they knew how many calories were in foods they hadn't before. People on the Atkins diet knew about carbs, and they couldn't stop themselves from sort of co- being more conscious of what they were eating. A number of people told me that they made very different food choices than they had before, that they were eating healthier foods and they were exercising. Their weights were still the same, though, and some of them said that they had, they'd Come to accept the idea that maybe they wouldn't always be, maybe they wouldn't be thin, maybe it wasn't in their control, but that was only they said that then i've heard from some of them since, and they've they're still trying it 's hard to give it up because people in the study, as people always say, said its it's really difficult to be overweight in this society. everybody judges you and they judge themselves in fact. One time in, in one of their sessions, people were talking about their own impressions of people who were fat. And they, who were fat themselves, were judging fat people. It was hard to believe. But there they were saying, you know, if they just went on a diet, these people were, knew how hard it was. So it was, it was a really interesting experience because you get caught up, just like they did, in this idea that they're going to be thin. And then you see their hopes dashed, and then you see them maybe make an accommodation, but then they couldn't quite bring themselves to make that accommodation.
1: One thing you mentioned that I think is especially interesting is the confidence that people have at a certain place in this weight loss enterprise that they'll never gain the weight back, and we've seen this in our own clinic over the years that you, you wonder how people have this confidence, because most of them had been on and off many diets in the past, and so why in the world would they be confident this time that it was going to work? But people lose some weight. They feel wonderful about it. They say to themselves, how in the world would I ever consider going back to my old ways? And they're 100% confident at that moment that they're never going to regain the weight. But in fact, the sad statistics are that most people do regain the weight. And it points out to me how difficult a process this is and how tough it is to lose weight once somebody gains it. And in my mind, it, it leads down the road of trying to prevent the problem rather than treat it. But I wondered about what you thought about that.
0: I actually asked a psychologist when I was working on this book who studied weight loss, I said I asked him a similar question, and he said that it always intrigued him, too, because he said there's one thing you learn in psychology, it's that if you sort of have negative reinforcement, someone's punished for an animal, a person's punished for their behavior, they don't want to go back to it. So why is it that people who go on a diet, gain the weight back, why would they want to go back to it again? And why would they get excited again? They've already seen what happens. And sometimes he will be on 20, 30 diets, 31st diet, they're excited all over again, I'll never be fat again. And he said that he's realized finally there is a reward to dieting. It's this really great feeling at the beginning when you're in control, and that's what people live for. And then when the diet starts to fail, instead of saying, well, I swore I'd never be fat again, obviously it's not in my control, they say, it was my fault, it was my fault. Like one guy in my book, Carmen, he'd been on the Atkins diet Previously, and lost a bunch of weight. It all came back. It was his fault, he said, because after all, everything was going fine, but then it was spring and there were some strawberries, and he thought, What's wrong with some strawberries? I put some cream on. And then he thought, Well, maybe I should have like a strawberry shortcake. And it was his fault because he let it get out of control. This time on the Atkins diet, it's going to be different. He'll never get fat again. Instead of saying, Maybe it's not it's not so much under my control because you're right Kelly all the research has shown that once people have put the weight on it's there it's really they really it's not really up to them to take it off because science hasn't got hasn't advanced enough to find a method that would work and it isn't even clear whether if you've put the weight on and then you take the weight off you have the same health patterns as someone who was never fat so it's also interesting, though, that all of the money is in the weight loss part and almost nothing is in the question of how can you stop the weight gain in the first place.
1: Something you write about very nicely in Rethinking Thin is how there's a lot of money at stake in doing these diet trials and a lot of money in selling diet products and things like that. Do you think that influences? Maybe you could explain a little bit about how that how that occurs and do you think it really influences or could it potentially influence the results that get produced about certain products or weight loss approaches.
0: Well, it's one of the things that was kind of interesting is you would if 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 you wanted to get a drug approved by the FDA, you'd want to do a, a placebo controlled trial and you'd want to show that you could actually have a, resu- a an effect on health that lasted that something actually really worked. And with the diet industry what happens is that most of the, of the companies don't really want to do studies. If you look at things like the Atkins diet or almost every diet that's out there, what happens is that the, there are studies, so-called studies, but they're never con- they're almost never controlled. They last a very short time and then the the companies can claim that people have lost a lot of weight. The researchers in in medical centers um, often do studies, but they, they, as they themselves will say, they're usually funded by by the somebody like the almond industry or something. They're often very short-term studies, and you don't know if somebody loses weight in the first six or twelve weeks. You don't. The real question is, what's going to happen? Where are they going to be in two years? Almost nobody ever pays for a study to go on that long. So, in that sense, it's not that I'm saying necessarily that anybody's opinion is bought, but the studies which are funded and most of the studies are funded by the industry, the studies that go on at all, are studies that are almost designed not to tell you what's going to happen in the long term. So in a way, you can, people can get a, a distorted image of the success of diets because of the way studies are designed by people who have an interest in making sure that the diets that they're promoting seem to work.
1: Right, and you pointed out in the book that the investigators make a lot of money doing these studies. And of course, not, not that investigators intentionally bias their results, although it's possible that happens, I guess. but you can't help but be influenced because the hand that's feeding you or the companies that stand to benefit from the outcome of your study, their drug is going to be proven to work or not, or their food product or their diet supplement. And so it's pretty natural to want to win one for the team, I would think, if you're the investigator doing this. I mean, in a calculated way, you're getting money, but also you're just part of this team effort that's trying to help a company pursue their product. So I could see how this would be a problem with the conflicts of interest
0: well and some of the medical some of the weight loss centers are funded just by the clinical trials that they're conducting so they wouldn't even necessarily be in business if they didn't have, if they didn't do the clinical trials and i, I mean, i'm guessing that people sincerely want to help people lose weight it's just that nothing that's been tried and the same things are tried over and over again they've been tried over and over again for 200 years they haven't worked And ordinarily in science, if you have a failed experiment, you don't keep repeating it for 200
1: years. (laughs) (laughs) Very well put. I know you've written about conflicts of interest, not in the diet area so much, but in the area of drugs and and pharmaceutical and, and medical devices and things like that. Could you explain a little bit about the things you've written on that and what your impression is of how this affects medicine and the way it gets practiced?
0: It's a difficult subject because most in most fields of medicine most people have conflicts of interest and when you just say well this person has been is on a speaker's bureau for this company or this person is has stock in well stock is even stronger incentive but stock in this company or this person does studies conducted by this company I think often the response of the reader is to shrug and say well what am I supposed to think here do I believe these results or not and I would like to say well the study and the data speak for themselves but my colleague and I in 2000 Kurt Eichenwald, and I decided we would ask this question and we'd say if you can we can we make a connection between conflicts of certain conflicts of interest and outcomes not just to say the person got money but to say because of the way the money was being given out, we have outcomes that are not what you would have wanted. One of the most egregious was we were, we were talking, we found people, there are a lot of doctors who make, whose entire business is in conducting clinical trials, and although the people who are enrolled in the clinical trials are usually not told this, the doctor makes money on each patient, for each patient that, that comes into the study. Not just the expenses of caring for the patient, but also a little extra for for enrolling them. So my colleague Kurt and I found got finally managed to get these confidential agreements with the companies and the doctors, telling how much they would pay and how it would be paid and how it would be dispersed. And then we also managed to get things which were saying things like, if you get the neck the this final patient in this month will double your money. So then we thought, well, you know. Who, who you wouldn't want to be the last patient walking in that month, the last day of the month, and this doctor knows if your blood pressure was just a little bit higher, they, you could get in that study and the doctor would get more money. Is it tempting to sort of take the blood pressure a few times and make sure it does get a little higher or do whatever it takes to get that person in the study? So we then found a doctor who had taken it so far that he was actually making up patients and he was making up data, and that he was making a lot of money too. It was sort of showed how far you could go. We asked the companies about this too. We said, "Why are you doing it this way? What's going on?" And they explained that it, it was it was very difficult to get patients, and it's very difficult to enroll patients in trials. So they, I mean, they didn't say they knew that there were possible problems here. The problem, but they had a difficulty too because they were trying to do their studies. But we did show that there there were problems in the way the patients were being recruited. We also found people in the medical device industry where the problems were even more flagrant than anywhere more flagrant probably than anywhere else. Where people were on boards of directors, had stock in companies. The devices that they were supposedly testing, they would exaggerate the benefits and really play down known harms when they were presenting it at medical meetings and not tell people what their conflicts were, that they that they stood to the gain substantially if people use those devices. So we wrote a whole series of articles. We wrote four or five of them over the year. It took a lot of investigation. And we thought we kind of explained why you would care. Not that we knew everything and we probably never will. And a lot of the of the problems are probably very subtle. You want this to work because you want to do another study for this for this company. And so you may you may interpret data, and there's different ways of interpreting it, in a way that makes it look a little bit better than it might have if you didn't want it to work. Who knows? But we wanted to explain why you might care and why this is an issue. And we thought we really had. I didn't really see a lot of difference, but you've told me, Kelly, that you think the tide is starting to turn and that there are people, more, more and more people who are starting to say it's not worth it to me professionally to get involved in this.
1: Well, also when I talk to journalists, it seems like they're a little more skeptical of people who take money from the industry. Pretty hard to find people that, that aren't.
0: Well, that's part of the problem, especially in certain fields, almost for psychiatry in particular. My colleague who writes about psychiatry said it's just impossible to find somebody that doesn't that isn't taking it isn't really embedded with the industry. Right. And on the other, on one hand, you could say, well, if you want to do good studies, you'd want the best people. And so, why wouldn't a company try to? Um, to pay for studies with the very best investigators. I think that's a really strong argument. If you're a company, you want advice from the best people. You also, though, as one guy who just recently told me he stopped taking um, money. For, he's, a, he's a heart disease researcher. He stopped taking drug company money. He said he'll give advice, but the company isn't paying him anymore. You could give advice because he cares about the field and he does want the studies to be done, but he doesn't want to take money for giving his advice anymore. So there are ways around it. But it's hard because it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you do want good research and you do want good people. And if companies are offering money for this, I guess a lot of people feel that, why not? They're providing a service.
1: You, in some ways, you can empathize with the companies that, say, make drugs because if they do all the studies themselves then they're considered suspect because they have self-interest involved so it would make sense that they would try to go to the highest profile respected people in the field to have these studies done but then that's where you get the conflicts of interest occurring
0: On the other hand there were some people who did things in a way that kind of made sense like I remember there was um, I think it was it was it was in in, during the breast implants stuff and I think the Nurses Study or some group at Harvard they had a big database where they could ask where was there any when they looked back at people who had breast implants compared to people who hadn't were there any more autoimmune diseases when were things being diagnosed this is before people knew to say oh I have breast implants I have an autoimmune disease and I I think Dow Corning wanted to pay for the study and the researchers said. That's fine. You can give us the money, but whatever we find, you'll find out when we publish it. And that's that's a way of, of doing it where they, their reputation wasn't on the line. Didn't matter which they said. I assume it's true that it didn't matter to them which way it came out. But the company, nobody could say the company had any influence in writing the paper, and they have had. They've even written papers for people before. They didn't write the paper, and they didn't even know what was happening until it was published.
1: Yeah, it seems one solution to this might be some independent testing agency, maybe something the government would set up that would do clinical trials on drugs and weight loss devices and medical devices and things like that that might get funded in some way obliquely by the industry. But if it was funded by the government, then you didn't have a stake as an investigator in finding something favorable to the industry. Then then the objectivity might be a little I guess,
0: but, you know, even even if it's funded by the government. I mean, the government has its own campaigns, too, Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you might say, well, I don't trust that either. It's very hard because people make their money on, you know, they get their grants if they say some sometimes what, what the government's campaign seems to be promoting.
1: Right. I agree with you on that. You know, one thing, I've often thought that the press um, has been and can continue to be a real ally in public health because there's the opportunity to get word out to so many people in such a persuasive, compelling way. And it seems to me the the press has been dealing with the obesity issue in a fundamentally different way now than it was in the past. For many, many years, it was uh, all around diets, like Dr. A's diet came out, so we'll write about that. Then Dr. B's diet comes out, we write about that. But in recent years, there's been a real turn to public health-oriented approaches. To Like, what is the prevalence in the U.S. and around the world? What are some of the drivers of the obesity epidemic? Um, what's going on in schools? What's going on with marketing? What's going on with these other things that might be driving this, this problem? And That leads down to a whole, whole different uh, path in terms of solving this, because instead of just thinking about treating people one by one, you get into prevention. But that's just my impression. Do you, what do you think about the way the, the press has been dealing with the obesity issue, and has it changed over the years?
0: I think that's an interesting observation. It makes a lot of... It, I actually... I think you're right. I've seen that, too. Part of it may be that people have become so alarmed by the increasing prevalence of obesity and overweight. In fact, so alarmed that I think that sometimes they, it's been exaggerated. And I think that sometimes the, when you look at the data, the medical consequences have been greatly exaggerated. One problem with this is that then, because people still assume that, that weight is under everybody's complete control it sort of it it can exacerbate the blame the victim thing well everybody's getting fatter and fatter we have to try to prevent it and these people who are fat really they should just lose weight so there's there's that aspect to it too there's a lot of that of that why can't these people just exercise a little bit more why can't these people just eat a little bit less when it's been shown that it's not all that easy and then prevention is ne- there's at this point as you've pointed out, there hasn't been a lot of research on prevention. So prevention has been presented as an answer, which it very well may be, but it's been presented also as you could just do it. It's so easy. Just take the Cokes out of the schools. And I I wish that people had some good data on how to do prevention.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Gina. It's thank been you, wonderful Kelly. having you here. Um, again, I thank Gina Colada, award-winning winning science and medicine reporter for The New York Times and author of a number of books, but the one pertinent to the discussion today is Rethinking Thin, The New Science of Weight Loss and the Myth." and the realities of dieting. And Gina, thank you so much for all the incisive reporting you've done over the years. And I really do admire the way you you take um, unique perspectives on things and tend to dig in deeper than a lot of other people. So you're uh, doing a good turn for the field, so thank you.
0: Thank you, Kelly. I really enjoyed this.
1: And again, the Rudd Center website, which lists this webcast and others, is at www.yaleruddcenter.org. And on that website, we have a free email newsletter, a blog, and a wealth of information on nutrition, obesity, and other related issues. Thank you.